Take our Bibles. Let's go to the book of 1 Samuel, and we're back to David this morning. And um, I enjoyed going through the Acts and the chapters there, but have thoroughly uh, enjoyed studying through David, and I'm looking forward to getting back into this uh, study as well. Uh, we will take a break on Easter Sunday, and we'll talk about the resurrection, as I think is appropriate to do that. Uh, but then we're just going to continue right on through in this series in the life of David uh, through the spring months. And so we're in chapter number 19 this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 19. And I think what I'd like to do to get our minds settled, let's read our text together. And we'll read down from 1 down through verse number 12, and we'll read that together, and then we'll fill in the rest of that as we get into the sermon. But let's read our text together, and then let's have prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to clear our minds as we walk into this chapter together, okay? And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you, therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he hath not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands and struck down the Philistine. The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel, and you saw it and rejoiced. And why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was a war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. And Saul sent messengers to the house of David to watch him. He might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let, down, let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the word of God this morning. Uh, Spirit of God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened as we walk into this. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would do a work in my heart this morning. Do a work in each of our hearts this morning as we consider this text and the implications in our walk with you. We'll praise you for what you're doing already. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I know every one of us have heard, the, uh, heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress. And I would hope that each one of us have read Pilgrim's Progress at some point. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, I would commend it to you uh, to get a copy of it and read it this week, begin reading it this week. It may be a little slow reading, but I think it'll be an encouragement to you. 
uh, there is great insight in this little in this book that God used probably other than the scripture uh, the most published Christian work done and it's a novel he wrote this as an allegory of what's taking place in the Christian life as John Bunyan penned those words and I one of the things that is so uh, memorable about the book is the characters that come up in the book and there's characters and he's just it, they're just so obvious what they are when they show up on the page. And like one of the first characters you come across is Christian. I wonder who he's going to be. Uh, he's the Christian that we're talking about. And then you come across a guy named Pliable. Pliable, okay, so he, he bends back and forth. And But the thought that came to my mind when I was considering this text is uh, a man named Temporary. Temporary. And I love the way that Bunyan puts this because he, he asked the question of hopeful and they're in conversation. He said, did you ever know a person named Temporary who came from your part of the country? And Hopeful responded, oh yes, I did. He resided in Graceless, a town about two miles away from Honesty. Doesn't that paint a picture for you? He lived in a city called Graceless that was two miles away from Honesty. And they begin to talk about temporary, and the whole concept of temporary is that he had an awakening to his sinfulness, there was a stirring in his conscience, but he went away from his calling. He went away from that and rejected it and went back to his sin and did not have true repentance. And they go into this long conversation, I'll not read it all to you, but basically the idea is that there was a falling away, that though the conscience, and this is one of the things, they said that though the conscience of such men are awakened, yet their minds and their hearts are not changed. And here we see this picture, I believe, in Saul's life. Saul could be called Mr. Temporary. And Saul is coming to a place of change of mind and yet not change of mind. And I've entitled my message this morning, Reason or Repentance. Reason or Repentance. Have you ever watched a show or read a book that during some point of the conflict, you just wanted to shout at the characters in the show and say, just tell the truth. Just be honest and stop trying to hide all this and this thing will solve itself. And the, the, the intrigue and the twisting and all could be done away if somebody would address the truth and it would just be said, just do the right thing. Saul finds himself in again another attempt to kill David. Here it's an outright attempt and I think verse number 28, 29, and 30 of the previous chapter tells us why he wanted David killed. Look what he says, but when Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle as often they came out. David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. David is riding on a wave of popularity and success. Everything David touches turns to gold. And the Bible said in verse number 19, verse 1, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. And this is where it turns. David is in favor. David is successful. And Saul is envious and jealous at David. We find the conflict with David and Saul now in full swing. 
Saul is afraid of David and rebellious toward God. And it seems that he makes a turnaround in this chapter, and yet the turnaround is very short-lived. It doesn't last. Saul has not repented in this chapter of his jealousy any more than a drunkard who turn, has turned from their drink because one day they are sober. He is still bound by jealousy and pride to which he is so addicted. He has come to a moment of reason in this chapter, but not one of repentance. And may I remind you that there is a great chasm between reason and repentance. Reason may drive us to work harder and to do better, to maybe even turn over a new leaf of self-reformation, but repentance will cause us to be aware that our efforts alone can never help us. It is only the hand of a Savior that can heal what is broken inside. Repentance is far different than just reason. David clearly understands the distinction in his own life as he wrote in the 51st Psalm when he addressed the restoration of God's grace in his life. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood that he had to be healed before the work of God could do a work through him anymore. As he professes, then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners will be converted to you. He understood that God had to do a work in him before God would do a work through him. Saul had come to his senses for a time, but he had not, nor will he at any point in his life, come to the Lord for healing. Sin that is set aside by reason or logic will be revived the moment the reason is no longer in view. How many of you know that sin by its nature is extremely illogical? It's irrational. How many of you believe that God sees everything? He knows everything. And yet somehow or another, like Jonah of old, we flee from the presence of the Lord. And where will we go that God is not there? Where will we go that God does not see? And yet Saul is still trying to accomplish his end. I want you to see in verse 1, Saul's murderous command. David is the talk of the town. Everything he touches turns to gold with each success. Saul is opposing David and God's plan for the nation. His heart is harder now than it ever has been. And he comes clean with those that are close to him. And he says, look guys, I want David dead. He calls his servants in and we would get the idea that these are the men closest to him maybe what we might call today his bodyguard or his secret service and he calls them around him and he says Jonathan I want you and the men at the table today to know that I want you to kill David he is guilty of treason or whatever reason he gives no reason in our text but for whatever uh, rationale he presented to these men, maybe it was just the authority of the king's word, kill David, these men now set out to do just that. The reason he is not given, no moral argument for the murder, just a command to kill him. The most accomplished soldier in all of the land, the king now wants dead. It is of necessity to point out that the powers that be often will command us to do what God has forbidden. And let me just say this, when the authorities that are over us, that are men's authorities, command us to disobey God's authority, we have an obligation to stand with God. We must stand here. Now, lest we be too hard on these men, we're not told the whole details of what Saul told them. 
But nonetheless, these men, they're going to execute David. They're seeking to do that. I'm thinking of the people in the scripture, though, that stood up against the powers that be and said, no, we'll obey God. In Exodus, we find the midwives that Pharaoh had commanded to kill the infants as they were born, and the midwives refused to do it, and God blessed them for this act. In 1 Samuel, a little later on, we find uh, Saul commanding his soldiers to kill a priest, and they refused to kill the priest, and they stand against Saul in that moment. I think of the three Hebrew children as they stand by the fiery furnace, refusing to bow, and even though uh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you're going to be burned alive in the furnace, they said, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from you, O king. And he's cast into the fiery furnace, and of course, God delivers them there. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John stand before the Jewish leaders of their day. And they said, you tell us, is it better to obey man or obey God? We must obey God rather than man. Saul at this point is irrational, full of rebellion against God, with murderous intent in his heart. He fears David will take a kingdom from him. Now think of the irrationality of this. He's afraid that David is going to take a kingdom from him that God has already removed from him. God has already said, Saul, you're no longer going to be king. Saul is not fighting against David, he's fighting against God. He's rebelling against God here. He simply does not want to be on the losing end of any contest. He must be rid of David and all his problems will be over with. If I could just get David in a corner, I could solve this problem. I wonder how often that's me and you. That all the conflicts of our life, if we're not careful, we focus them on an individual and we think within our hearts, if this person would change or go away, then all of my troubles would go with me as well. If I could just fix that person, maybe for a parent it's a problem child or maybe it's an in-law, a pastor, maybe it's a deacon or an individual in the church. Maybe for a spouse, it's the one that you committed to love with all your heart and you're thinking, if my spouse would just do right, then this would just go away. See, the problem with all of this is that the more we run from people and the problems that people bring, the more we face the problem in other people. Have you ever left one job and went to another job and found that the same personalities that rubbed you wrong there are at the other job too? Did it ever dawn on you that maybe God has put that personality in your life for your glorification, your, rather your sanctification, not just theirs? And, and I would challenge you that the problem with my sanctification is revealed with my response to somebody's sin as much as it is with their sin against me. You see, the reason this is done is that the problem I have here is the way I've responded to their behavior. You see, Saul's greatest issue in his life was not just his sin, but his response to his sin. The response to his sin is what is hindering him. There is no repentance in Saul. There is no place that we find uh, Saul crying out and saying, God, have mercy on me. We find Saul at no place saying, against thee, and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Saul doesn't do that. Saul is like, no, it's David. David's the problem. If I could just kill David, then the kingdom would go back the way it was. You know, too often those around us would stir us 
And they stir within us a discontent or a frustration, and we begin to point out what they're doing wrong. And I can't believe they treated me that way, and I, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And it's interesting how we can be so uh, righteous and angry at their behavior, and yet we give ourselves a pass at our anger toward them. And I look at them, and I see myself in the mirror of the Word of God. And by the way, that's the only hope we have is the mirror of the word of God to exchanges. Let me say this morning, blame and excuses are the opposite of humility and repentance. Anytime you hear blame or excuses coming out of your mouth, you can understand very quickly that you're on the other side of reason and you're on the other side of repentance and restoration and humility. What do we find when the first parents of the world stood guilty of sin before God, what's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? The wife you gave me, Lord. The serpent you gave me. And there's blame and excuses, not humility and repentance. Now as we consider this, the more innocent the victim, the more sinister the plot Revenge is never sweet for long. Retaliation will not settle the score. There's only one who can balance the scales of injustice with you. There's only one that can balance the the scales of injustice that you have done wrong or has been done wrong to you. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that will set this right. It is only running to him and, and humility that balances the scales. And we find David over and over again in his life, when he sins, what does he do? He runs to God and casts himself upon the mercy of God. And we see him doing it uh, throughout his kingdom when he's leading as a king, even more so than now. You see, I think when we come to someone and we've done wrong and we seek for forgiveness, we're asking them, saying, hey, would you do me the privilege of going to Jesus and getting the forgiveness that he has and bringing it to me? You see, we forgive. The New Testament tells us we forgive in the person of Christ. I'm saying, would you go on my account and see, has Jesus forgiven me of this? And then offer me whatever he offers me. And and here's the thing, when we withhold forgiveness in our hearts, the only sin you and I have right to withhold forgiveness for is the one that Jesus hasn't forgiven. David is on the hot seat in an incredible way. So we come to Jonathan's warning in verse 2 and 3. We read this earlier, Jonathan leaves and tells David immediately. This is an interesting one because now alliances and allegiances are are divided, are they not? Jonathan has a responsibility to his dad, who is the king. He has a responsibility to David, who is his friend, and he goes to David. And I think rightly so, he confronts David and says, David, your life's in danger. You need to hide. Jonathan and David are on opposites. Uh, uh, Jonathan, rather, uh, saw in David the opposite of what his father saw. Saul saw a threat for the kingdom while Jonathan understood David as the future of the kingdom. Jonathan does not avoid the situation. I think we can loudly commend Jonathan for not avoiding the situation. And by the way, I I think one of the the mistakes that we have inside the New Testament church 
is that often we are just too nice. And you say, what do you mean by being too nice? I'm not talking about walking about and being rude. But I think under the, under the guise of being nice, we don't confront one another. We don't go and say, hey, I think the way you spoke the other day was out of line. I think that was not exactly how it would be honoring to the Lord. And I think there needs to be, and by the way, you can't have that conversation if you don't know the person. If you haven't walked in harmony with the person, you can't confront that person that way. And that's why it's so important that we be in community with one another so that when someone is struggling, we can see it and know it and lovingly and caringly go to them and confront them. And Jonathan, I think, demonstrates a desire to do this. Notice how Jonathan goes then. He does not distance himself from the king with a timely press conference. You know, Jonathan is not on the news saying, uh, I'm sorry to hear the decision of the king to kill David. I just want you to know me and my office are not in for this, and we're, you know, we're now taking steps to reverse this legislation. You know, that's not what he's doing at all. But he runs to David. He warns David of the evil that is intended against him. He confronts Saul with the foolishness of his plan. They remind us this morning that better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. May we also be bold enough to confront the situation rather than run and hide from conflict. There is a human conception that all conflict is bad and that any argument is wrong. This removes the means of, uh, of others to confront bad ideas or even error. This idea leaves us all in greater peril, in my opinion. This is not to say that we should be rude or lay aside decorum, but that reason out, reasoned out arguments in a level way, willing to stand on what we believe regardless of the cost. And Jonathan is putting himself out there. He is laying it out. Thomas Jefferson, in his first inaugural address, he wrote these words and wrote them to the nation. Error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. In other words, we can disagree as long as we're not shutting each other down. I think one of the greatest sins of modern society, yea, even at times modern Christianity in particular, is an unwillingness to concede that there could even be another viewpoint than mine. Disagreement does not, call, uh, disagreement does not scare me as much as those who cannot allow for disagreement without shutting down discussion and, and fighting back with ad hominem. And we see this in our political system, and unfortunately, we see it among Christians as well. But Jonathan goes to David and says, David, hide yourself. Dad, listen to what I'm saying. This is not a good idea. You're making a major mistake. And he pleads for both accounts. David makes himself scarce and waits for the news of Jonathan to confront Saul and what happens there. I would just say David must have had a whole lot of trust in Jonathan. There's a lot of confidence in this guy because he's like, all right, I'm going to hide myself. You know how to get in touch with me. And you've been the guy given the command to kill me. And David waits for Jonathan's word and trusts Jonathan. Jonathan goes back to David with the plea David waits with hope of restoration. 
Jonathan's plea to the king. Jonathan, in verse number four and five, goes to the king and he says, hey, let me tell you, David is not this guy that you're thinking, that you're painting him to be. And David has uh, put himself in harm's way for you and for the kingdom. And man, remember Goliath and when you killed Goliath, how you were excited about the victory and you even rejoiced and you praised David in that time. You're doing something irrational here. He points out that David had done Saul no wrong and you shouldn't do this as, uh, for against him either. And Jonathan's argument begins to win the day with, with Saul. And he said, why should I kill David without cause? Sin, again, is irrational at its core. There are many rational arguments against sin. But we will not be long dissuaded by the rational alone. Think of all the irrationality of crime. And yet it does not curb its growth in our society. Think of the irrationality of laziness and yet so many times it wraps its tentacles around our heart. How foolish is adultery? Even the secular world knows it's foolish. And yet it, bring, and it brings destruction, and yet fools, they tread where even angels are afraid to trod. And we rush into this. We know that sin will destroy us, and yet we ignore it, and we know that it, it will destroy us, and yet we think somehow or another we're exempt from its, its, its effects. Now, I want to commend Jonathan again for his efforts of going, but I do think Jonathan comes up a bit short here. Jonathan comes to David, or rather to, to Saul, and he argues Saul on David's merits. And he said, hey, David is a good guy. Hey, David has fought a good battle. He addresses the fruit of Saul's sin. Don't kill him. But what he fails to do is get to the root of Saul's problem. <clears throat> what he fails to do is come at Saul and say, Dad, here's the issue. You and God are not right. Dad, you're in rebellion against God. He argues for David's merit, but he never comes to him and says, Dad, here's the issue. You're living against God's purposes God has anointed David to be king. You need to come alongside with what God is doing and join God in his mission, and this can be fixed. But he argues on David's merit, and I'm going to say this, that often while there are thousands that hack at the leaves of evil, Thoreau said only a few ever strike at the root of it. Too often we are going at the, the leaves of the problem. You say sin has fruit in our life, but it also has a root in our heart. And when, when sin that is manifest in my life comes out and you see whether it be addiction or it be a temper or it be a sharp word or it be a gossiping tongue, all of those manifest sins that come out of me are connected to a root that is buried in my heart. And if all I do is deal with the fruit of my sin, I never deal with the root of my sin, it will grow back. And here Saul is being addressed about the fruit of his sin. Don't kill David. Guess what? That fruit grows back. Because the heart issue is never dealt with. Tim Lane in his commentary on this, he said, we worship our way into sin and we must worship our way out of sin. You see, the reality is that at the root of it all, it's a worship problem where we're not focusing on who God is and seeing God for who he is. David does get a short reprieve here. Saul hearkens to Jonathan's voice and notice 
that he only hearkens to Jonathan's voice, not God's voice. He's not responding to God's word. He's responding to Jonathan's word. And let me just say this morning, his promise was not, to, uh, not one of conviction, but one of logic and rational thought. He has not surrendered to God, but to his son. How often have I as a pastor had the opportunity to plead with men about their sin and their minds uh, and try to change their minds about a certain course of action. And all of the arguing is of to no avail unless they hear the voice of God. You see, you may agree with a pastor on some point or another, but if you do not change your heart as opposed to just changing your mind alone, you will find yourself in the same place in short order. Because if all you do is change your mind and there's never been a change of heart, you're sending yourself right down the same road. The voice of the pastor is a poor substitute for the voice of God. The voice of a Christian counselor, the voice of a growth group leader is a poor substitute for the Spirit of God doing a work in your heart this morning. The voice of a parent is a poor substitute for the voice of God. And he heard the voice of Jonathan. He did not hear the voice of God. And he doesn't have repentance. He simply has reason. And his reason is going to fail him in just short order. I think this is this right here, what we see in verses 9 and 10, is a return to normal. We see them coming back in verse number 7. I want you to see this word. This little line, and Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. I like the way the King James words this a little longer, as in times past. Often, when someone goes into a sin, and there is a, a breach in relationship, and there is, there is consequences for sin, and by the way, sin still brings death. Often the statement was, I just wish things could get back to normal. I just wish things could get back to the way they were. And I would argue that's the wrong goal. Because can I argue with you this morning that the way they were is what led you to where you are? The way things were, the status quo prior to the sin is what was, it was the prelude to the fall. What we need is not to get things back to the way they were, but to get things right and if our heart lined up with a holy God, because our heart wasn't lined up with him long before the manifestation of our sin. And here I challenge you. He said, let's get things as they were in times past. The problem was covered over but not dealt with. All things were back to how they were, so to speak. David goes back to winning battles. Saul goes back to resist, resisting the Lord and resenting David. Every success that David has and his men have drives Saul toward murder again. The evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul, and we dealt with that a few weeks ago, and I would commend you to go back and listen to that again. David plays again to soothe his heart, and it seems there is little soothing being accomplished in this session. There is little this physical world could ever do to solve our heart's problems that are spiritual problems. 
No stimuli or sedative will remove the guilt and the conviction of sin. No escape or diversion will remove the root of bitterness and jealousy from the heart of man. But I am glad to say to you this morning that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what a God that we can run to him in our most vile moments and he wraps his arms around us and cleanses us in the blood that he shed for our sins. What a Savior. Sin unconfessed will not get better on its own. James 1, 14 through 15, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Deal with your sin at the beginning, not at the end of the process. As soon as we see pride rise up, as soon as wrath or malice or lust or greed or ill will or disobedience or dishonoring of our parents, deal with it then. Take the sword of the word of God and address the sin. Or eventually you will pick up the spear of Saul and you will try to bring death to your own demise. And it's interesting that Saul's demise is not by the hands of the Philistines. It's not by the hand of David. But when we look at Saul on his last day, who kills Saul? He falls on his own sword. And friend, that's exactly what sin does to us. It is self-destructive at its nature. The javelin flies from Saul's hand. And we never hear the phrase, as it was in times past. The relationship that Jonathan and David had is now separated for the rest of their life. They'll meet, but only briefly. They'll converse, but only from a distance. Never again do Saul and David sit in the same room and enjoy company again. They only meet on the field of battle. And all of this is lost because Saul never dealt with the root of the problem. Reason is not repentance. There must be a place where we run and say, God, what is going on in my heart? What is wrong with my worship? Saul connives again to have David killed. Will not belabor these points here. Michael's, David's wife, hides him. I think it's an interesting one. Take it home and read it. She actually puts uh, an image in the bed to hide that David's not there sleeping. And she covers it with some hair on the top of it and makes it look like he's taking a nap. I always thought that was very interesting, you know. I tried to do that with my parents and make them think I was in bed. That's as much as I'm going to confess. Um, she warns David. She puts an image in the bed, blames David uh, when she's called to account, and that one's an interesting one to me, when they put her on the spot, it's like, well, David said he'd kill me if I didn't do it. I, I don't know what to think about her much. Nonetheless, David flees. David goes to meet Samuel. And all we're told in verse 18 is that David runs to where Samuel is and stays with him. I wonder what their conversations were like. And I wonder why we don't have any of that written in Scripture. Maybe one of the Psalms, Psalm 59, may line up to this. There's some speculation about that. However, we don't hear a conversation between Samuel and David. 
but I would love to be a fly on that wall. Saul then doubles down and tries to go after David. He's going to kill him. He sends servants down there, and a very unique thing happens, and I just want you to see this briefly here. And um, as we come down to the end of this chapter, and I'm in chapter 19 now, in verse number 20, and Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing at the head of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So these, these messengers go down to get David with Samuel, and Samuel standing there prophesying, and they, they tell me that this is probably the idea of a time of praise or worship. Most likely they were singing and magnifying God. And they come down there to get David, and they're stopped in their tracks, and they just begin to prophesy. They begin to sing. They begin to talk about God and magnify him. And their whole purpose of going is now turned. And so Saul's like, hey, what's going on? Why is this happening? And he sent other messengers down, and they got there, and they also prophesied. You know, isn't it interesting how that when one thing doesn't work, we think just repeating that action will make it better? And he's like, I'll send more down there. And they got there, and now the choir has gotten bigger, and Samuel's leading this whole group of people as they're prophesying and magnifying God. And they went with murderous intent in their heart, and now they're glorifying the God of gods. And Saul's like, that's fine, I'll get this, I'll fix it myself. And he goes down, and what do we find Saul to? In verse number 23, and they went down to Namoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth Ramah, and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is an interesting picture, is it not? This is the man that the evil spirit of the Lord had come upon. And now he's down here and the spirit of God comes upon him and he begins to prophesy and he's magnifying God and he strips off his outer garments. And, and again, the word naked here doesn't mean that he's fully naked. It's the idea that he's stripped to his weight or he's revealed his undergarment and he's laying there before God in a very humble state, before Samuel, rather, in a humble state, and he's prophesying. He's magnifying God. When we think of this, when men, the Spirit of God does not work against our will when we are yielded to him. When a person is yielded to the Spirit of God, and the Bible talks about in Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There is a sense in which I am walking in line with the Spirit, and as I'm walking in line with the Spirit, you would just say, man, that person is, they're bold. There's an excitement, there's a power that comes from God, but it's not me wrestling with God. It's not as if God comes over me in a moment and now I'm out of my control and I can't control what I'm doing. You never see that happen when somebody is in line with the Spirit of God. But what you do find is that when men are opposed to the Spirit of God, they are opposed by God. You think of a man named Balaam. Balaam goes down, and he's given the commission by a pagan king to curse the people of God. And he goes up on a mountain, and he stands there, and he's like, I'm going to curse the people of God. And he's like, bless you. And he's like, ah, you know what? This mountain isn't working. Let's go to another one. And they go to another mountain, and he's like, I'm going to curse the people of God. Bless you. And again, he does it all the place, and he can't get the words to come out of his mouth but to bless the people of God. Because here's the thing. You may have a hardened heart against God, but you will not do something that's not within the purposes of God. He will stop you from doing it. 
And here Saul is in opposition to God, and God comes along in his spirit and turns Paul, Saul from his own purposes and controls this man in this moment. And now he is operating against what he wants to do because he doesn't have the power to do it. You see me say this morning, God's work will be done. God's word will be proclaimed, and God's glory will be known. He will do his work. God's work was done in spite of Saul's self-willed rebellion. And just because we say good things doesn't mean we have good hearts. Here God uses a donkey in Balaam's account to preach his word. And here he uses Saul, a rebellious king, to proclaim his word. But it's interesting that Saul's reign is bracketed by this phrase. Is Saul also among the prophets? If you were to go back to chapter 10 and verse number 12, they ask the same question. Saul goes down, he's anointed king, he's journeying back, and he begins to prophesy and magnify God. And they looked at Saul, and they're like, is Saul among the prophets? And it, when they asked the question in chapter 10, it was hopeful, and Saul was willing he was willingly magnifying God. The people were hopeful about what God was doing in the heart of Saul. But now it is a point of doubt in the minds of people when they ask the question. And Saul is unwilling to do it. But God's work will be done. You see, I think what we have to do is be reminded that we have an opportunity to bring our life in line with the purpose and work of God. We know that in the end of days, that every person will be in line with the purpose and will of God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do it willingly. Some will do it against their will. We have the wonderful truth of God's word that we don't rest upon reason but we can go and have a new heart put inside us. That now my desires have been changed. Now I want to magnify. Let's pray together. Father, your word is rich. This text is full. And Father, I pray that you would take what has been offered this morning to be an encouragement to your people, to be a challenge to us as we walk forward. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in my heart today. Do a work that only you can do. Lord, I pray, Father, we would run from reason alone and that we would turn to repentance. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.